how would they implement this? What are their barriers of access? How do I help them overcome that barrier, drop their guard of protecting this community? And I think that's probably the, the best recommendation if you're outside of the educational space is find your educators and pick their brains. Welcome to the podcast that helps speakers and writers like you grow their impact and income. This is stage, page, and screen. Not to boast, but had new sewer pipes installed in the house. Wow, that is something. Well, it's one of those really annoying adult activities, and there's no... There's no sort of egotistical upside to it. You can't say, come over to my house, let's watch the Super Bowl together. I just installed this new setup. You'll really enjoy it. That's true. But on your bathroom break during the Super Bowl, yes. you're going to really appreciate what I've been working on. Yes. I've, I've been trying to figure out how to write off these sewer pipes. <laughs> I'll so cut this I've, part out, so don't worry. <laughs> I've, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, just... I've I've started having the family refer to them as business pipes because I'm I'm determined to make these a business expense. And someone said, you know, maybe if you put like you know a logo and a slogan oh. above each toilet, you know, sort of like right. business pipes, shit with confidence, then. <laughs> Because that's, I mean, that's really, that's really the only upside. I mean, I feel like that's the, the felt need when you're doing the marketing. The felt need is, I, I yes. want confidence that see, this I is going to go down. I can see you read that story, Brand. Oh. I can, so oh, absolutely. One, one, have your pipes fail. Two, call <laughs> local plumber. Three, shit with confidence. <laughs> this episode of Stage, Page, and Screen brought to you by Business Pipes. Absolutely. There it is. Do you have to mess with the pool at all? Do you have to go under? Do you have to go over? No, the pool. The pool is safe. Okay. From, I mean, I that's think. where the sewage goes. Does it? I believe so. Every flush. Are you a Are you a plumber? I could, I could be wrong. I now you're making me nervous. I know. I'm sorry no, about that. No, I'm let, scared. Should we let Chase in? Should we invite him into this? Oh, Chase is. A, you're gonna like Chase. I do He's, like Chase. I had a conversation with him already. Yeah, when we were getting this thing rolling, remember. Oh. I was picking his brain. I was. Oh yeah, he's sharp. He's good. Yeah, he's good, and he's good looking. So. Well, I mean, that's debatable. Yeah, okay, that's fair. We'll definitely include that part. Okay. <laughs> let's see. Let's see if <laughs> Chase right. is here. Oh boy! Come on! I'm excited. What's he wearing? Oh, here, here we, go. we go. There he is. There he is. Here let's we are. Go. Arsenal. Yeah, oh. he's an Arsenal guy. Oh. Well, now why is why is there foliage growing off the guitar? <laughs> The, the, the guitar background. has recently gone through puberty and yeah, sort it's, of... Yeah, it's, it's about exploring its own musical journey, you know? Okay, That's you don't uh, say it with that kind of tone, but I, mean, I get your point. It's a little condescending, <laughs> yeah. but I feel like Josh needs some of that in his life right I, now. Well, I well, felt a little targeted about my uh, background decor there. That's fair. That's fair. I, I tend to do that to people. How are you, Chase? Good morning. I'm, Good afternoon. I'm doing really well. Yeah, it's uh, afternoon over in these parts over here yonder. Yeah. And you're in Iceland? Yep, pretty that, much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Michigan. They're pretty close. They're Aurora they're Borealis. Here. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> shooting, shooting the yes, the next frozen movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> now talk yeah. to us about the trajectory of tattoos. My understanding is you either get zero or you get eleven. 
Yeah, that's kind of where we went with, you know, I got the first tattoo when I was like 18 and then I, I got a couple eight. more. But I yeah, <laughs> started real young. <laughs> that's what I heard. Um, you had to cross but I got him in like a, a real a real light ink, like a brown Ooh. ink, and then yes. it like faded to the point where it just looked terrible. And so I went to a tattoo artist, and he's like, "You should just blast over the whole thing." And so I've got a a full sleeve design in the works, and now it's just a matter of Whoa. trying to trying to deal with you know eight hour days of just sitting under pain and torture. Um, so it's it's a little bit brutal. So I've got two sessions in, and I'm hoping just a couple more, two or three more, and. Yeah, we're getting so I feel there. Like he just he just upgraded you into a timeshare. I mean, can we really trust a tattoo artist to give independent advice on whether or not uh, he should bill you for some more ink? Do you have any more skin I could use? I would. Really it, like that's that. it's kind of how it feels. Uh, you know, it is that weird world of like I don't want to equate get, getting a tattoo to childbirth because I have never birthed a child. But no, please go I, ahead, do, get that on the record. I think <laughs> I think this would be well received. Go ahead. That idea Chase. of you go through this intense trauma and pain, and then yeah, like go ahead a and month give your later, email address as well <laughs> while you while you make this analogy. Thirty percent of our then, audience is yeah. pregnant pregnant women. <laughs> Well, they they will be able to understand this. Yeah, if you go, totally you go through the all the pain, and then like yep. a month or two later, you don't remember the pain so much so mm. that you're like, oh, I would have no problem having another baby, like forgetting the trauma and the pain. And to a much lesser extent, that's how I feel like a tattoo is like, I hate it. It's miserable when I'm doing it. I'm like, why am I submitting myself to this pain? And then like a month later, I'm like, ooh, I kind of want to do more, or I want to get this touched up, or I want a new, new spot or new tattoo, so... That, yeah. that is my checked out preschools for your tattoo yeah <laughs> i started a fund if i okay, put yes. in a, enough dollars into the tattoo artist account then my kids will actually be funded for their first tattoos when they turn eight so like i'm really that. excited about that i like yeah. that for yeah. sarah and i are done having children but i do enjoy holding a stranger's baby so i i think that's similar <laughs> <laughs> Which is always strange for the stranger because yeah, I normally don't rarely, ask. rarely do I you normally introduce don't yourself ask. before. I, yeah, I just sort of go right up and uh, I believe they call it snatch the child. I just yeah. I just kidnap the child. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're getting this on record too. There's just a lot, well, a lot happening here. Yeah, we're actually yeah. almost done. We're wrapping it up here. <laughs> this was really helpful. Thank you, Chase. Appreciate all your insights. Uh, now, here is here is where I do want to genuinely start with you. I think you'll enjoy this question. Okay. You know, they say that uh, baking is a labor mm. of loaf. Mm. <laughs> no, no, we're going to go ahead and uh, take that again. Can we take that again? No, I'm not. I'm not doing that again. Okay, I like I'm it. Not, I like. I'm not. I'm not insulting folks with the pun again. Here, here is my genuine question to you: Can you tell us what you've learned about writing or speaking from sort of your fascination? in the art of baking bread? <laughs> uh, there is, there's quite a lot. Um, okay. So let's straight off the a, cuff. A little backstory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I got real in, long before it was cool during like COVID shutdown. I got real into just cooking in general, but specifically bread baking, um, having my own star, sourdough starter and just like all the different facets of different loaves and, like I, I can get real nerdy around like the science of bread and all the different phases and the hydration levels. Um, 
to the point where like I, that kind of became associated with with me as a human being. <laughs> like people would see bread and they're like, "Oh, I saw this great loaf of bread and I thought of you." And I'm like, "I don't really know how to take that, but I'll take it in the most." That's good for way. you. My my identity wrapped around <laughs> alcohol during quarantine, so I feel like yours <laughs> yours is certainly healthier. <laughs> yeah, I'll take I'll take that one over for sure. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm super passionate about just all things cooking, but specifically bread baking. And I mean, the thing that I love we're going to get real nerdy here is just this idea that you can take something completely raw separate ingredients and you can take you know you really only need four ingredients for a loaf of bread you need flour water salt and yeast and that's it and you don't even need to like buy package yeast like the air has yeast all around it that's what starts sourdough and so for me, that level of like, you can take just these basic ideas and using your own skill set and your own investment, like you can create something amazing. And so there's like that, you know, tug at the heartstrings sort of space of like, that's kind of what I feel like writing and speaking is in general is you take these ideas that might already be out there that you've experienced and then you get to work some magic and translate that. But, uh, you know, a little bit more in the learning level of just like the quality of ingredient matters. Like if you if if you have crap coming in, you have crap coming out in many ways. And so um, I think it is just that constant pursuit of like, how can I make this a little bit better? How can I get a little bit better with my ingredients? How can I just pay attention differently? Um, so we can keep going because the other space I'll go is like you also the environment that you're in can vastly mm -hmm. impact the result that comes out. So the humidity of the room or the temperature of the room, um, your altitude of where you're at, like that's almost kind of that audience piece of like, you have to be able to react. You can't just follow the exact directions that were written for you. You have to pay attention to the whole process. You have to look for these cues and these signs of what to do in certain moments. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's my shoot from the hip response of like how bread baking kind of translates. In prayer. That was very, that was powerful. <laughs> that was good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought it might translate because the ingredients are simple. The ingredients yeah. are known, mm -hmm. uh, but you know the result of someone's product varies so greatly. And you yeah. go, how is you know how is this simple loaf of bread so so good and so much yeah. better than you know you know what I'm attempting to make at home or compared to some other product? Do yeah. you, I mean, do you think it's it's a craftsmanship? It's it's the quality of the ingredient it's it's number of reps it's just or it's all that yeah I, I think it's a lot of that but i think the reps is the most important part of you just the only way to get better is to just try and like that's the other thing that can be a little bit challenging of just cooking in general specifically baking is you have to wait a long time and it might bomb like you for some of the loaves that i do we're talking like a, a four-day process of how long it ferments and where it ferments. And so like you put all this into it and like it, it might turn out horribly wrong, but you just learn from it and you try to adapt for the next time around. And so I think that's that's the piece. I think anyone can learn learn how to bake or learn to, to cook or make anything. But you just have to have that patience of like, I know that I'm going to make some mistakes and we're just going to roll with it. And hopefully it's at least edible or stomachable for myself or others. And you just, you just go through that process over and over again. There was a moment where my wife and I had to be like, we need to stop eating so much bread product because it was, you know, every day because I got so obsessive. It was like, I, I no want to be regular. Right? This is <laughs> This is yes. abnormal for sure. Yes, so. yes. We're too young to be taking Metamucil <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have an interesting journey as someone who's uh, 
has product services on stage, mm-hmm. on page, on screen. Mm-hmm. I want to talk through each of those today. Let's let's start with stage. Okay. Uh, can you tell me about the first PD or keynote that you saw sat in the audience as a educator? Mm. And that experience was was either so bad or so mm. good that it inspired you and you thought, well, you know, I could probably do that or I or I would desire to do something at that level. Either mm. so bad or so good it yeah. sparked something in you. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, I mean, the very first time I sat in like an opening keynote was my very first higher year at my district. And, you know, most people know, like I look young and I started teaching 15 years ago. So I look like a child. Like I looked like the teenagers I was working with and I had this long, ridiculous hair. And I remember this speaker, like, you know, he wanted to just play around with the crowd. And so when they first announced me in front of the whole district of like, here are new hires, like people in my, my staff, my colleagues, like they, they literally, there was a silent moment and then there was giggling <laughs> And then there was like these hushed points towards Who me, let the and it was like schooler in here. <laughs> like it was, it was this moment of like, oh, like I'm not getting the same reaction that every other new hire is getting. So the speaker actually picked up on this, and so you know, he he does this. I don't even really remember the content of his speech, but he was doing some reenactment of uh, the Rocky movie and the statue of like him holding up his arms, and so like he calls me out because he knows that I created a response from the audience. And he makes me, for whatever reason, I don't remember when, just literally stand up on stage while he gave his speech, just like flexing <laughs> and just like, more or less. Hold on. Just, Hold on. Everyone the just got to laugh at me. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking like 20 minutes at least. So like he gave most wow. of his speech and then the, the tail end, like well, there's, there's a moment. child labor laws. I mean, you were yeah. 11 at the time. <laughs> there was something illegal about that moment. Uh, so it was absolutely like, that was a moment of, this is, kind of weird and i had, remember having this thought of like you know he got an effect but i guarantee he made more money in that 45 minute experience mm. than i will make all year as a first year teacher uh, so that was one of my first experiences of like you know a lot of different people from a lot of different angles can do this thing called speaking but there's also a difference and maybe we'll get into it later i think of like speaking versus professional development And even though I can't remember uh, exact professional development that I sat in for a bulk of my career, I can remember consistently over and over again, it wasn't very effective. And there are many reasons why it felt like this is a complete waste of my time and my colleagues' time for someone who's just traveling in. You know, it feels like they're just bought into this program and making a buck and then they're moving along and... So that has always registered on my mind, whether it is public speaking and doing more keynote style or doing professional development workshops, full days, multiple days. It is how to make sure that whoever's in that audience doesn't feel the way I have felt over and over again of there are so many things I'd rather be doing with my time and energy. So uh, those, those are a couple answers that, that come to mind from that question. And when, and when you say specifically it wasn't effective, can you kind of tease out what you meant by that at that time? Yeah. A number of things that come into play with like effectiveness is I think for any professional development to actually be deemed effective, that it should translate into observable moments in a classroom setting that wouldn't have happened without that professional development. 
So not having practical skills in staying in that theoretical bubble of like, we're going to talk about the philosophy of these ideas, but we're not actually going to give you time, structure, examples, support, coaching to actually take that, that broad picture and, and put it into your act, actual context with your students. And so I think that's one of the, the first pieces is, is someone going to teach, interact, function differently as a result of our time together. Um, and too infrequently were there those moments of like, oh, I actually took something and used this that had a positive impact on either me personally or the students I serve or my colleagues. So, so let's maybe start to tease out some of the difference between a keynote and a PD. Yeah. You know, sitting here today now as a former educator and now as someone who's going around and doing this, yeah. how much of that sort of practicality and contextualizing it to the classroom that you're talking about. How, how much of that should be present in a keynote versus mm. present in a PD? And you know, I love percentages. So if you can give me a percentage, like, <laughs> hey, maybe I was waiting for you, it. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. And, and I'll, you know, I'll design a pie chart in real time, of course. Um, but but maybe, you know, for you, your aim is maybe something like, you know, 10% of that's present in a keynote versus X percentage present in a PD? Mm. Uh, well, I'll start by saying I, that's one of the biggest evolutions for me personally is I started deep in professional development work long before I started getting into keynote work. And um, I mean, Josh, you probably remember some of the growing pains of like when I was first doing keynotes, I was, I was very much treating it more like a, a workshop professional development and just realizing that like th those are different beasts that a keynote is called a keynote for a very specific reason of it is supposed to set an emotive tone for the rest of the conference and the rest of the work that is done. And so when I would move into keynotes, I really put all this pressure on myself of like, we have to like stay in the practical land in strategic land and the talking nothing but research and what it looks like in the classroom, like stay in that spot and realizing that that's not often why someone gets hired for a keynote. Like they get hired to to set that tone that then can help them do the additional work with whatever workshops or professional development they do. Um, so I had to learn along the way. And, and that was almost like a discomfort point of I had to be okay knowing that to some extent that keynote has to be more towards the emotional end and the storytelling end and for lack of a better phrase, the performance end as a speaker than the facilitator lens of uh, workshop or professional development um, facilitator. And so if you were to put it down into percentage, I think, you know, kind of where I've landed with what has been um, successful and resonated well with my keynotes is that I would say they're probably about 60%, maybe drifting into 70%, really story driven, get the, the laughs, get the cries. Um, bring in some of the logical appeal through through research and build in some interaction. And then 30% to 40% is more in that, like, here's an actual strategy I'm going to give you. And here's what that might look like in your classroom. Or, or you do some theorizing, what would it look like for you to apply this within your world uh, versus a workshop or professional development, I think is almost a flip. It has to be, you know, there's absolutely some, some humor that needs to be engaged and there has to be those emotional connections because people need to see you as an authentic human being, an authentic educator, but it really should be a lot of facilitating their work, their thinking, their connections around the content. Yeah, you know, I used to describe sort of a good educator keynote as make them laugh, make them cry, give them hope. 
Mm. But I, I, I think that that final step you're talking about, which is really like, you know, make them laugh, make them cry, give them hope and arm them with tools, like yeah. something they can say, something they can do, a strategy that they can implement. And I think for a lot of speakers, particularly uh, actually in, in my sort of situation where they have an adjacent story that would mm. be quite inspiring to an educator, which mm. is why folks like me often you know, get asked to do a keynote is because the inspiring story is adjacent. It's like, here's, here's a kid's trajectory that went through a hard time, stories of educators that provided these uh, poignant and important moments of intervention. Right. And the message is essentially like, hey, you can be that educator too. But with folks like me, we can be guilty of just stopping at give them hope, mm -hmm. uh, which indeed is, is an important tool, but then leaves out, as you so... Um, as I so beautifully forced you to do, give me a percentage, <laughs> you know, leaves out that 30 to 40% of arming them with some specific tools. Yeah. So if, if, if we flip the tables and you were coaching me back when you were an educator and I was going around talking to groups that you were sitting in, yeah. you know, how can, how can I understand how to extract a tool from my inspiring story if I have not spent time in the classroom? Mm, that is a very important question because what was lingering through my mind is I think educators are some of the strongest gatekeepers to the community of education. Um, and I think for very specific reasons of, of so many educators do get micromanaged and talked down to and decisions are made beyond their even control or influence and they don't get paid enough and they don't have the respect. And so as a result, teachers are, are very guarded of like, who's going to try to tell me how to teach? Like, you don't know my students, you don't know my world. And so sometimes a trap that I think uh, a speaker might fall into is making an assumption of like, ooh, this helped me in my personal life. So like, it's it, they will like this. And then it almost comes off as patronizing or at least, dis I wouldn't, wouldn't say disrespectful, but lacking that empathy piece of like, I actually know what you're going through in order to apply it. So I think if someone's outside of educating education, one of the best things they can do is find their educator friends or people they know and run through their content or ideas with them first and just openly ask them like, A, is this useful to an educator, a typical educator? B, what would it look like for you to take this idea and actually put it into practice? Like how would I know or how would you know that you are doing something different as a result of this, this keynote, this workshop, this speech? Um, and just really trying to like get into those conversations. And one thing that has always been helpful for me is, you know, I worked with dozens, hundreds of different educators throughout the time. So when I go into plotting out or planning what an action step would be, I literally think through the lens of all these various teachers, like, ooh, that guy was the most cynical human being I've ever taught with in my life. Like, what would it take for him to apply this? Or this person, they try every idea and then they burn themselves out. And so how would I also frame this in a way where they don't feel the pressure of having to do it all exactly like this. And so it's almost like creating these little archetypes of various educators of like, how would they implement this? What are their barriers of access? How do I help them overcome that barrier, or drop their guard of protecting this community? And I think that's probably the, the best recommendation if you're outside of the educational space is find your educators and pick their brains. Agreed. Yeah. And for me, I found it very helpful to just name that elephant in the room 
mm-hmm. with absolute clarity, absolute candidness, and mm. no gray area BS slightly lying to the audience. You know, you yeah. see a lot of folks that go around and speak at schools, and so then mm. they'll they will slightly exaggerate that term and say, I work with schools or I, you know, I I work in the ground with schools. It's like, look, if you get there an hour (laughs) ahead of time for a sound check and you speak to 800 students, that ain't working with kids. That ain't working (laughs) with students. That ain't going through what these folks are going through. And so I think just acknowledging exactly what your lane of expertise is and is not and staying in Mm. your lane of expertise uh, can, you know, can, can at least uh, perhaps tone down or mute down some of that patronizing um, Mm. effect you could unintentionally put out. Yeah, for sure. Because there, there is that BS detector that many educators have. Like they, they listen for those terms, and they, they are looking for that credibility piece. And the, the more moment they can sniff out, like, ooh, this person is really just trying to stretch their actual experience in education, then now all of a sudden we've really turned them against us, rather than just at least being in a neutral space. I think the other thing I would add, and and this is kind of my hot tip, um, is I don't think a speaker has to have the answer for here's what it looks like in the classroom. I think it is more effective and more respectful when you frame this around a question of what would this look like in your classroom? How would you know that you are applying this? Because I think that's the other space where a lot of educators feel micromanages, like people telling them what to do, even if they're coming from the great intentions of most educators, like I can figure out how to do this. I just need time. You know, I might need a couple examples of what it might look like, but I need the time. I need the opportunity to process this idea and match it with my context, and my style and my needs. And so I think for a lot of educators, don't be afraid to, to flip the, the action step into a question of what would it look like for you and how would you apply this? has helped me a lot with kind of letting down some of that guard and not feeling the pressure of I have to know what every single educator would do with this information. I want to talk through your brilliant kind of methodology around gradient. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's, again, here there's a difference between a keynote and a training, and yeah. there's a different responsibility with the speaker versus the audience. Yeah. You know, my mentality as a speaker, I need to show up on the stage preheated and I need mm-hmm. to be bold and courageous very quickly mm-hmm. with the audience. Yeah. Whereas you you have this really I think brilliant philosophy that the inverse should be true with the audience. You know, we should safely and slowly lead them to warm up if they so choose versus kind of expecting them to go there right away. Can you talk through this idea of gradient and and how you use it? Oh, yeah, I would love to. Uh, First, I want to give credit where credit is due. This concept first came my way with a professional development company that I worked for for a a good decade or so called the Quantum Learning Network. Um, And that was, I mean, that was my training ground. They, They gave some of the best, if not the best development training for facilitators that I've ever come across. And so they were so intentional, like one of their tenants as a company is everything speaks. So everything must be on purpose. 
and really getting hyper-focused through the lens of not only like what we're doing with ourselves on stage, but what sort of experience we're providing for our audience and how we're strategically thinking big picture all along the way. And so grading is this idea, you know, we talk of it in terms of like low gradient to high gradient in terms of the audience's emotional connection, openness, and trust. And so I'll give you an example of something that seems really little, but can actually be a bit of a high gradient uh, shock for an audience that might turn them off or the wrong way. Is I have seen it, experienced it so many times. I've done it so many times where like someone kicks off and they're like, all right, good morning. How y'all doing today? And the audience like kind of claps. And then they do that move. They're like, that's not good enough. Let's all oh, try that again. Everyone on I just, your feet. I get up and go, go to the bathroom right there. I just, <laughs> like, I'm out. It's especially for educators, they're like, just shut up right now. Like, I, I don't try to force me to have fake emotion. But what it is, is we are trying to get our audience to perform at a high energy level when they're not even ready for that yet. Like, they are still in that preheating phase. And so, one of the elements that we can look at is what makes something low to high gradient is like how much energy our audience has to undertake to do something. Another element of gradient is to what extent they are talking like real deeply in an emotional space versus really surface level. And so a lot of times we could start off a little bit more surface level. Um, prime example of, you know, a lot of times when I'll start off my keynotes, rather than having them do like a turn pair share right in that moment, it's just like, a, I'm, you know, I share various like multiple choice options of like, what was your biggest Zoom fail over the past few years? And it'll just be like, raise your hand if you ever had that moment where you forgot to turn off a setting and all of a sudden you're not muted anymore. And so it's real low grading of like, they can raise their hand if they want to or not, but they at least have this slight little moment where we're starting to warm them up to the idea of we're going to be honest and vulnerable of our mistakes moving forward. And so I do that early on, and, and then they're going to do a little bit later on, a, a little pair share where they make a prediction over some research statistic. And so that's still relatively low gradient because they're only taking about 10, 15 seconds to interact with each other. So they're not having this deep, lengthy conversation. The content is safe. They're not talking about their personal world. They're not having to be vulnerable, but they're starting to get a little bit more warmed up to the idea of later on when we go real deep and we start talking about um, some more emotionally engaging topics, we've already had these little sub-steps to build up the gradient. So that, those are some of the elements of trying to start off with very brief little interactions, not a whole lot of emotional sharing with one another, but we're still very strategically building to a larger emotional connection or vulnerability. It reminds me a lot of uh, some research I read about sort of human vulnerability and relationships. And mm. the, the author talked about sort of these three layers. Layer one is events. You know, this is mm. why you meet someone new, you're likely to talk about the weather or yep, the sports yep. or politics yeah. or whatever. Secondly is sort of wrestling with ideas because when we wrestle with ideas, we share maybe a bit of our purview, a bit mm -hmm. of who, who we are as a person because that of course shapes the ideas that we're passionate about. And then that third layer is feelings. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the one that takes the most safety and trust to get to, to, to open up about and such. And it, it feels like that, that same mentality is what you're sort of doing here with your audience, not, you know, not trying to flip that and expect them to go yeah. deep right away, even though, and do you still agree with this is, 
is your mentality that your you as a speaker are going to try to go deep right away, mm, or do yeah. you, or or as a speaker, you do you try to kind of ramp up with them, or you're going to try to go deep right away? I typically, if I'm going to go into an emotional space, which I do pretty early on, um, I try to keep it more in like the humorous self-deprecating mode. Um, in part, and this is something that I've just noticed in working with teenagers throughout the last decade and a half and now into working with adults is um, audiences sometimes aren't ready for that deep, like throw into the, the deep end of something that could be ten potentially traumatic for them to process. And so I actually like provide a, you know, quote unquote, trigger warning ahead of time of like, hey, later on in this speech, in this conversation, like we're, we're going to be having some deep topics. And one of the topics that's going to come up is blank. And that's something I learned from other speakers who just kind of preface that. And so I think you can absolutely as a speaker, like I can go to an emotional space and I can share my story. But I at least want to be aware of how do I prep my audience before I make them start to get into that space as well. So there is kind of a difference between how I'm thinking about my content development versus how are they experiencing that content throughout the, the speech or the workshop. Mm. And how would you wrestle in your mind that, you know, maybe sort of giving them a heads up of what is coming, you go... It, are you in any way, is that some sort of a sort of almost emotional spoiler where it's mm -hmm. like, if, if I could just, you know, like in a movie, if I could just startle them, surprise them, you know, we're going around a corner and then this pops up, would that not be more emotional? You go, well, it, it would be, but for a certain slice of the audience, that's going to be too much for them. And then I'm, I'm actually going to lose a certain slice of the audience. Yeah. How do yeah, you kind of wrestle with that? That was a, a real con concern I had when the, th that development of, you know, within my previous company, we always called it like, you don't want to like pop the bubble or spoil the pop of, of revealing too much earlier on. Like you want some of that curiosity. Um, and I've, I try, you know, I experimented the various ways of like, I'm just going to kind of subtly tell them, hey, we're going to get into some heavy topics later, but not really tell them what those topics are. And then compare that to like, I'm going to let them know we're going to have some difficult topics. And I'm literally going to tell them like, this is one of the topics that's going to come up. Like suicide ideation is going to come up within this conversation. And I just kind of observed for, you know, a good dozen plus speeches of like, what was the difference? And I didn't find any difference between keeping it a little vague versus being more specific. In fact, mm -hmm. I had way more people afterwards say, like send me messages and say like, thank you so much for like giving me that heads up because um, I wasn't in an emotional space to, to process that. And just the the layer of like, they felt respected as a human being to be able to be given a chance to engage differently. And so as much as we might be tempted of, you know, I don't want to spoil too much. I think if your skill is good as a speaker in how you deliver that story, even if they had a heads up of what the topic is going to be, it is still going to land in a way that moves them emotionally, but yes. safely so that they don't feel so shocked or so in a defensive or um, trauma-based response that they don't actually hear the rest of the message along the way. So from my experience, right. I've, I've really shifted from like, don't tell them anything to like, no, it's actually going to be more effective if I give them a pretty specific heads up and then just trust my skills in delivering that content later. That Agreed. Very, very audience-centered, you know, very audience-oriented versus... Hmm. You know, just how, how am I coming off? How am I looking versus mm -hmm. I'm going to intentionally take their hand and mm -hmm. walk them into these spaces 
and uh, they might be a little nervous, but that's okay because they're with me yeah. and them and that kind of thing. I, I like that a lot. Agreed. Let's let's debate one final thing on this point. Yeah. W- what if could would it be as effective if, as a part of the scripted introduction mm-hmm. that someone from the host organization reads before you come up for the keynote? What if somewhere within that scripted, you know, mm. five, six, seven uh, sentence introduction, the warning was there? Hey, at some point in Chase's speech, he's going to get into some heavy topics, or at some point, he's going to get into these specific topics. Do, do you think that would be better mm. because then it's coming from someone they already know? Or is there something about the act of you thoughtfully disclosing that that actually earns you credibility? and a bit of trust with the audience. Mm. Which, which would you place a bet on if you had to guess which you think would be more effective? If I had to place a bet right now, I would bet on the speaker delivering that message themselves. In part because a lot of people space out during that intro. <laughs> like they're, they're not even attentive within that moment a lot of times. Quite fair, um, yes. I and they're probably going to mispronounce your last name anyway. They're going to so butcher it. <laughs> and destroy it. Um, you know, I think potentially a happy balance or happy medium, and I've done this with a lot of organizations, is I always, you know, I always call ahead of time and, and speak with the, the organizer, whoever's bringing me in, and just kind of learn more about their audience. And um, I'll share with them. I'll say, you know, I am going to be diving into some topics, and here's one of the topics that's going to come up. What should I know about your audience around this topic? And I've had multiple times where they've said, like, you know, we actually had a suicide within our school district last year. And so... That's information that then I share with them of like, if on your end, you feel like it would be beneficial to give your audience a heads up through the email or as you're, you know, publicizing this, like feel free to just so you know, I will also deliver that from the front of the room. And so then it's kind of a, you get both of those of a little bit more prep work ahead of time coming from the organizer, but still me, me as an individual, like I just, I don't think I can rest without me being able to share and maybe it's a control thing of like i want them to know that i care about their needs and where they're at and being respectful of that i don't want it to seem like i don't care and my my ocd brain very much likes those redundancies that you've built in where it's Mm -hmm. like they might say oh yeah we're gonna send out an email and that doesn't trickle down to the person that gets into the constant contact account and therefore it's not put in there you assume it you know these are the sort of things that keep me up at night chase (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's 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 move to the page. Uh, your books, okay. "The Burnout Cure" and "Illuminate the Way." They're both books on burnout. Mm-hmm. How do you think about as an author, uh, sort of owning a niche versus getting typecast in a topic and thus uh, risking burning out on burnout yeah. yourself? Yeah, for sure. What's interesting from my end is. I never went into writing thinking I was going to be someone who writes about burnout. So my background in, in what really drove my teaching for a decade and a half was teaching positive psychology. And so I was a nerd diving into the science of well-being that you know went beyond just like burnout and went beyond just a teacher's experience. And it was just really all those elements of gratitude, forgiveness, optimism, resilience, how it gets built. And so when I first pitched the idea uh, to the publisher, I went through ASCD. Um, it had nothing to do with like it didn't even wasn't even called burnout, anything to do with burnout. It was just like basically here's my positive psychology class that has helped me as a human being 
deal with the challenges of education and not feel like I'm completely languishing or struggling. And so my publisher was actually the one of like, hey, we want to reframe this as the burnout cure. And I had a hard time with it. I was like, but it's not a cure. I don't want to call it a cure. Like what if people start sending me angry emails? Um, But they were, you know, very prescient in the idea of burnout is a real issue with our audience and with teachers. And so you're going to have a different level of understanding and interest if we're using that term burnout. Um, And so what happened was, you know, I, I... shared around this topic and I was really just teaching positive psychology. And what I experienced on the road was that this trend happened within my topic of, and it's still kind of lingering, where a lot of the responsibility or blame gets placed on the individual's shoulder around burnout and well-being. And so everyone was all about self-care, self-care. You just got to bring in the yoga instructors and do the mindfulness meditations with the teachers and then they'll be okay. And then it's like, no, it's, that's not helping. Like that's not working with a lot of educators because burnout isn't just an individual's fault. Like it's organizational. And so that pushed me into this journey of because I'm now being associated with burnout, which wasn't necessarily my initial intention, I really need to do the deep work and figure out how much of this is organizational versus individual and how to balance the two. So it was almost like the needs of the audience was driving me into a direction. And I don't regret for one second doing a deep dive because I understand it on a different level than I ever would have before. But all that being said, I love positive psychology and I love all of these other topics beyond just burnout of how to help people be at their best so they can give their best and experience deeper meaning within the world. And so that's kind of the next phase of of where I'm at is trying to figure out like, how do I make sure that I'm not the lone burnout guy and that if I do have all of these other things that I, I have researched and developed for years that I don't lose that credibility of people like, well, what's this guy talking about when like, he's the burnout guy. So that's on my, that's on my radar right now is figuring out how to, how to really make sure that the workshops I provide in professional development shows a range of my interests and passions and abilities. And so that it's not just, they see these two major book titles and now that's pigeonholing me into this lane. Yeah, I know you and I have had those conversations confidentially. Mm-hmm. It's like how do, you know, how do you show that your, you know, that was the beginning of what you had to talk about but not the totality yeah. of what you had to talk about. And that and that's going to be tough when it moves from theoretical to practical cuz that's going to mean a period of time saying, "No, thank you. I'm not going to write a third burnout yeah. book." <laughs> right. uh, no, thank you for a period of time this is the primary keynote I'm offering, which is not burnout related. Mm-hmm. And if you want the burnout keynote, you're going to have to get on the waiting list or you know, some sort of probably kind of tricky and intentional boundary uh, with that as well to, to make that shift. Yeah, I think that word boundaries is, is really important because, you know, I think boundaries not only protect our own emotional space, but I think they're also clear communication to the people around us to let them know what we need and what we're about. And so there are are those elements of, I think sometimes I should speak for myself. I feel the temptation sometimes of, yeah, I see these TikTok influencers or I see these, you know, big Instagrammers, all these names. And it's like, you can tell they have chosen this lane and they are committing full tilt to this lane. Like all their content is just regurgitation of the same few ideas over and over. And they're getting great success with it. 
but that is not what is going to fulfill me as a human being. Yeah. I need yeah. to not only explore multifaceted interests and passions for my world, but be a human being that can share those because not everyone in my audience is going to be burning out and not every teacher is going to be languishing with this one topic. So how can I, in the long run, be able to sustain my passion while also providing the many different needs and issues uh, that people are going to have in education and beyond. Be brutally honest. How much longer do you think you could just do the burnout keynote, mm. you know, roughly 50 times a year before you're burnout bitter and pissed off about giving it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if we go all the way back to our first yeah, question, how long before you become smashing pumpkins? I, <laughs> I went and saw the smashing pumpkins and it was, wow. it was, they might as well have called the tour we burned through our money, we didn't save well, we didn't invest well, and we got to sing these damn songs to you people. You know, and that, so I know that's one of my favorite bands ever, and I've heard they are terrible live, just, just going through it. Um, I mean, I, so I think back to when you're talking about like bread and like baking, and there will always be an element of me wanting to have that pursuit of perfection. So I think I... I realistically could give that keynote for quite a long time because I'm constantly going to be tweaking it and I'm going to be looking for mm -hmm. these little improvements and adjustments. So I don't know if I'll ever get to the point where I dread going up on a stage or in front of a group to do it. But I what if do I, What if I said you're not allowed to change a single word of the mm. keynote from the one oh. you gave a couple of days ago? Like what it has to be locked. Yeah, I, I think I could maybe do another year of it in that okay. capacity. So it's the, um, it's the it's a subtle tinkering that that breathes some life into it for you. Yeah, I think the I tinkering. I think I think there's also like the as a speaker, as you as you do this and you interact with people, and hopefully you're continuing to stay up to date on your research and and that's informing your ideas. Is that there's always these like nuances to what you're talking about, and it shifts and it changes. And so, how I used to talk about the concept of being a goodness curator two years ago is very different than how I approach it now because I think just people's general knowledge, what I have as insight. So all that stuff is always going to evolve. I don't ever view a keynote as this static thing. It is very dynamic and it's going to be evolving and changing. But at the same time, I feel myself even now of those moments when I'm on stage and I'm I've just delivered some some line or even some like huge chunk. And I have that moment of like, I, I hope I just said that because I kind of spaced out as I was talking. Like it is so rehearsed and trained yes. that I was able to say the words and really what I'm doing is I'm paying attention to like that guy in the audience and seeing if he's reacting or not and what am I going to do and how am I going to engage him to the point where it's almost gotten, I don't want to say robotic, but it is so autopilot in some phases that I yes. that scares me. I don't want to be in that space where I'm just regurgitating something mindlessly. Um, I want it to continue to live and breathe. We'll be right back. All right, so let me pitch you something. Are you someone that wants to launch and grow a speaking business? Maybe it's time to write and publish that book. Perhaps you want to create and sell your online course. Well, I've put together a free on-demand training video for you. It's not going to promise you the moon. It's not going to say it's going to happen quickly or without tears or sacrifice. But I'll pragmatically lay out for you exactly how to chart a course to do all these things we just talked about. You can find this free on-demand training video at stagepagescreen.com. That's stagepagescreen.com. 
I did a keynote last week in Illinois mm. and, you know, about one caring adult. Yeah. And I found this moment, just this single moment in it. Uh, I have this moment where I make fun of the first time I ever saw my foster dad. Mm-hmm. That you know, he's you know six three three fifty, and I I make fun that he's shaped like a lowercase b. <laughs> and then on stage in that moment, not planned, I make this connection that at fourteen, sitting in that foster care DHS van at fourteen, mm. I was overweight, mm-hmm. and I made this connection that that when a kid has been through trauma, that trauma does not allow them to recognize hypocrisy. Just the words fell out of my mouth. Trauma doesn't recognize mm. hypocrisy. Mm. Sitting in that van making fun of his weight, I too was overweight. Mm. And just that one moment, just that one kind of connection that I was able to make finally after a couple hundred times delivering it gave me like a a, a real giddiness mm. to share that again in the future. So I think that that tinkering, finding those small little adjustments can really, really sort of buoy up the speaker's own enthusiasm in delivering it. For sure. Yeah, I hear like you're becoming, you're trying to remain authentic to who you are. So you're continuing to grow and you're learning and you're developing maybe even in real time on the stage in front of people. And that's what you're bringing with the team. Yeah, I think so. so. But but some things get so locked. It's like once you find Mm. a good joke, you actually don't want to mess with it because now you've learned this pause these six words, not the eight words I used to do to deliver mm-hmm. it, that that's going to get the best reaction. Yeah, and so there are certain sure. elements yeah. where you almost feel like, that's like, that's I can't mess with that. I, yeah. I can't mess with that. Yeah. I think on the whole, there's almost uh, having that mindset. And again, I think this is something that just coming from, comes from the background of being a classroom teacher of never wanting as a speaker to assume or give any sort of indication that I know all the answers, that I have this figured out, that I am the source or credibility and really moving, you know, that cliche of rather than being the sage on the stage, being the guide on the side of just having that mindset of like, yeah, I am a nerd and I do some really deep research around this that I know a lot of teachers just don't have time for. Yes, I have, you know, put some credibility and mastery into understanding these ideas, but still like we are exploring these together. So I'm going to, I'm going to share my world and I am going to have some rehearsed stuff to like evoke some emotion. Um, But there are absolutely these phases built in where I'm putting it on you all to make your own connections and do some conversation around it. Not assuming that I'm going to tell you exactly how to do this. I want to go back to the burnout cure, Mm -hmm. ASCD, recommending that title. Mm Mm-hmm. And you sharing that story, you're like, oh, it's it's not a cure. That's that's sort of an overpromise. Yeah. I remember when we first started working together, when you yeah. first signed with TYS. I think this was some of my early advice to you. Was <laughs> I saw in you some of this? I think what I called sort of star colleague syndrome. Yeah, yeah. There was there was a real hesitancy to speak definitively because you were so used to speaking collegially. Mm-hmm. You know, you you were working day in, day out, 
elbow to elbow with your fellow educators. Mm -hmm. So everything had to be so nuanced, so contextualized, so, hey, this is a great idea, but, you know, not for this situation, not for this situation. <laughs> it, it was like you would say a brilliant thing and then have 37 disc. I mean, it sounded like a freaking, <laughs> like, a, like a, a pharmaceutical ad, you know, may, may, leakage. What? I'm sorry? I beg your pardon? <laughs> How so when because I want to talk to you about advice and maybe we get into mm -hmm. it here. When I brought that feedback and guidance to you, were you hesitant to it at first? How did it hit you? How did you make sense of it? And then what did you actually do mm. to go, okay, I don't I don't want to lose a collegiality, but mm, yes, I am being brought in as an expert, whether or not I'm comfortable mm -hmm. with that title. So I do need to speak with that weight as well. Yeah, I, re I remember that feedback. And it, in the moment when you gave me that feedback, it was kind of that moment where you have the hard look in the mirror of like, okay, let's not pretend that we don't know where this is coming from or why you're doing this. Um, you know, a little bit of backstory. I first started doing professional development for my district when I was in my third year of teaching, which is ridiculously young to be leading professional development for your colleagues. And, you know, as a result of that and just kind of how human dynamics are, you know, I got labeled within my district as golden boy in not a very kind sense. Like my name was used pejoratively of just this person who gets whatever they want without actually having to like have skin in the game. And so I very much overcorrected of I was so hyper paranoid of if I suggest something like, do I even know what I'm talking about? Like I'm going to get criticized. And so that's where I started to build in all these little disclaimers and all this, like, I want to try to make sure we're all on the same team so I don't get that label again. And so when you share that feedback with me, it was like, ah, oh, crap, he's right. Like I have let this past experience saddle with me throughout the entirety of my development as a human being. And so from there it became like, yeah, he's a hundred percent right. But like, what does that shift and transition look like, especially when I have habituated those disclaimers and how I started off a, a keynote or workshop for years? It took some active work. And what helped me make the shift is primarily just talking with other speakers, because I didn't know many people who did keynote speeches. I knew a whole lot of people who did full day professional development, which you know, is very building gradient and trying to slow warm up the audience. I didn't know a whole lot of people who were doing like, you got one hour and you have to make use of every moment intentionally to deliver an emotion and a response. And so speaking with a lot of other speakers and just like how they started off their talks and, um, you know, even some of the advice from you of like, you're trying to get people in the deep end a little early to get them at least moving towards the emotion that you seek. Um, so that was kind of the process of like, what do other people do? Like, how do they do this differently? Because I haven't really seen or experienced it. And then the last hurdle for me, I think, was overcoming the fear of speaking as a performance. Because that was some baggage that I held on to of like, I don't want to be a performer. I don't want to be a person who just stands up on stage and goes yeah. through these robotic motions over and over again. Like, I still want to be authentic and relating with a crowd. And so it, it took quite a lot of work to get to the point of, of knowing that, A, I can perform a speech and I can have these really rehearsed uh, moments within my content, but I can do that in a way that doesn't lose my humanity and do it in a way that doesn't 
let others have this perception that this guy is just like a robot going through this. Like he doesn't know what it's like. Um, so a combination of just learning from other people and then just tinkering and, and practicing and figuring out what works, not only for getting the audience to respond more positively, but for me to feel comfortable in my skin doing it. Mm. Now, feedback is still something that's important to you that you mm. actively seek, you know, both from oh, yeah. your audience, from trusted mentors, specifically from an audience. How, how do you make sense of what is helpful feedback and sort of yeah. actionable feedback and, hey, you know what, that's a fair critique. And I've heard that enough you know, said differently, but I've heard that enough. It's like, yeah, that is definitely like, I need to make a product update here. That is totally fair pushback versus someone, someone else's own baggage or situational (laughs) awareness. How do you both have the posture where you're like, I want feedback. I don't want to close myself off to it, but parsing through what is useful and wise that you need to own versus what it is you just go that's on that person that that ain't about me (laughs) for sure uh teaching teenagers for a while is a good way to to develop a thick skin (laughs) i think like develop that uh the habit of being non-defensive and so anytime I, I elicit feedback, which is very often, especially if I'm doing like a workshop, like I'm, I'm giving them index cards before a break and ask them to jot down, like, what's one thing that uh, you want when we come back in the afternoon? So I'm always like looking for that feedback. But I really try to look A, at trends. So like if this is creeping up a couple times, even if it's in different language, different audiences, like I need to pay attention to that. Um, which I think most people do, like they they can look for that and they can recognize that. But I also am a believer in at least processing those sometimes isolated or outlier feedback pieces that we get. And I think sometimes we have to first like just receive it and then give ourselves at least 24 hours, 48 hours to, you know, set it aside before we come back to it. Um, because sometimes when something stings and it is isolated or it does seem like an outlier, it is so easy to just like brush that aside and be like, screw that person. They're a crotchety crank. Like they don't know my life. They don't know what I've been through, but there could be really valuable information around that. Um, and so I think like giving ourselves a chance to just process it a little bit more. And if we were to look at the core idea behind that feedback of maybe the specifics they were talking about or the words that they were talking about, uh, could have been more tactful or didn't really like relate to what I thought I was doing in that moment, but there's something there that they might be talking about. And I might want to go with the assumption that this one person might actually be representing more people than I thought who just weren't open enough or vulnerable enough or uh, brave enough to share that information. Um, Some of the most important tweaks and changes I've made within any of my workshops or, or keynotes came from those isolated moments. Like I remember the moment when I got the feedback that I should have provided a trigger warning to my content and that it was completely disrespectful not to give people a heads up that I was going to be talking about that idea. And I totally went to that land of like, I mean, the the story was serving a higher purpose, but like I sat on it for a little bit and that's where I started to make those tweaks and changes of like, I just, I do need to be a little bit more considerate and respectful. So I think the trends most of us do, but don't be afraid to look at those outliers. Just give yourself some time, try not to be defensive around it and look for what's the larger conceptual idea behind that feedback. 
Now, I want to put you on the spot of some feedback <laughs> I've repeatedly given you oh, that you have repeatedly, repeatedly, Jesse, he has ignored. Here come the slides. This is, this is the whole point of this podcast. We're not even going to publish this one. Yeah. This is a staged intervention. We're 58 <laughs> minutes in. Is this appropriate gradient time? Are you ready for this now, yeah, Chase? I Are think you so. Ready? Yeah, we're, we're warm. Ready? Buckle up. Buckle up. <laughs> All right. So for Chase... And and I I want to hear your thoughts on this. For Chase, I've all right. So we were in Mexico, TYS, our our agency, bunch of the speakers, and Chase picks up a guitar, <laughs> starts singing some random cover song, and I'm like, I hear it across the room, like, whoa, this dude can like legitimately sing. And then I remember seeing you know a couple sort of comedians that would close their their show by kind of calling back some of the biggest laughs in a, you know, three minute comedic song. So it was like a really beautiful bow on their stand-up set. And I thought, man, this would be, and this was during that time where it's like, Hey, you've in your keynote, you got to get out of like the workshop guy and you got to be a bit more performative. So I was like, dude, you should recap some of the key moments, ideas, strategies, lessons, funny moments, you know, the fanny pack story, et cetera, in a song. (laughs) And you said, that is a brilliant idea and I'm going to absolutely not do it. So (laughs) love that. So yes, yes. So talk to me about what is your hesitancy to do that? And again, just in general, we all have these experiences. People bring us ideas. You're like, that's interesting, but that's that's either not for me or not for right now. Yeah, yeah. I have I have many uh, reasons that I'll call excuses for not adopting that. Get them on the <laughs> yeah. record here. Um, so what what has I obviously well, maybe not obviously internally obviously the biggest hesitation is feeling like I'm not adequate enough to do that. Like. Sh- Singing in front of people, I think, is a different skill than speaking in front of people. Uh, singing humorous songs, writing humorous songs, I think, is a different skill than like covering a song. So, like, there is that element of like, I would have to definitely do some some deeper work and practice around like what that would actually look like to a point that I felt comfortable enough to do that on stage for a whole lot of other people. Um, and then, you know, the the kind of sub excuses going along the way for me have been, you know, I've I felt like I just recently got that main keynote like polished to a point where like it, it is landing really well and like I have every minute kind of mapped out and I'm still sometimes going over the time limit. And so it became the logistical piece of like how do I how do I fit that in? Like what needs to be cut and adjusted? And, you know, we have a hard time time letting go of our babies of like, I have all these things I've worked forever to do. Like how, where would that come into play? Um, so I am just getting to the phase of my own speaking skill or comfort of being okay, starting to make some of those big shifts and big dabbles around, um, you know, I know I'm, I'm right now working on a new keynote. And so that is automatically going to require some growing pains and some shifts and some changes. And so this could be a phase of like, ooh, I could could start to pull some of that from my previous keynote into the new keynote. And there there's the space where I could do a, a, a song around the fanny pack story of Senora. Um, so it's still there. I'll tell you, like, it's not like I just completely kicked it into the can. I, it's I heard kinda, him say the new keynote is going to have a song in it. That's what I heard. <laughs> I mean, it could be the pack. 
Riverside.fm <laughs> connection. I don't know. <laughs> it's there. I, I, you know, bigger picture. I think there is, there's always discomfort or fear when we have to move into something that's working well into growth. And yeah, I think that's a big piece for me is like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm resonating and this, this one's landing well. So like, I don't want to mess with it yet, but I also know I'm going to have to, to tinker and continually adjust and change. So, yeah, my, my psycho um, sort of analysis of it is, you know, I think you, you have reluctantly embraced the, the necessary performer elements that a yeah. good keynote must have. You've reluctantly, but also wholeheartedly embraced those. And I think the guitar is almost like, mm, now I could become like a caricature of a thing mm. I don't want to be, where it's like, now I'm pulling out a guitar and I'm doing a song. Yeah. You know, and so I, I wonder if, if too, there's, you know, you're sharing serious ideas, thoughtful ideas, helpful ideas, where you go, could that cut across the tone that I'm trying to have as yeah. a speaker? Yeah, for sure. I think there's the, again, a, a difference I see with potentially doing a song or, or music is, you know, I experiment with jokes and those jokes, 10 seconds we're talking about, you know, like a story is, yeah. is a few seconds. But um, if I move into a phase and start singing a song and it isn't good, like they're sitting there with me for two to three minutes <laughs> cringing yes. in a yes. moment that could unravel or undo everything else that I've done. So um, it's kind of the hard challenge of typically that song would probably land best at the end. And because it would be new and it would because of risk, like ending out with that piece might, might make it challenging. But you, you're spot on that I think there is. It's almost a symbolic thing of like when you pick up a guitar, you are literally performing. And I mm -hmm. have struggled to make that transition of like that is actually OK within this phase or, or experience of speaking. When I hear performing, I think if it's somebody translating. So you're mm -hmm. translating those thoughts, those ideas into something that's going to be best for the audience or, or most helpful mm -hmm. to the audience. And so f freeing yourself from this is about me and that's easy to say, of course. And that kind of thing, yeah. um, because all I would want to do is like 60 minutes of funny songs. But yeah. <laughs> I do think there is something where you can be free performing. I'm a performer. But if you're a translator using these this performance to get those things across, there could be some freedom in there, some power in there to. Yeah, use whatever device is yeah. best yeah. for that moment. I'll keep yeah. harassing you. I'll keep <laughs> harassing you, Chase. I think it it's could, still there. It's growing. It is growing in my mind every the, time yeah, we chat. Yeah, the new keynote. I think it could be a clever recapping vehicle. Yeah. That's how it. Yeah. it mm -hmm. You know, the conceptual vessel. I see the song. Yeah. As a conceptual vessel to recap the all the highs and lows from the speech. In like yeah. a here's the, here's the cliff notes through a humorous vehicle mm -hmm. that there's. You know, again, when the when the song is pitched humorously, you're surprised if the guy can sing well. So I, I, I think yeah. that part is kind of disarmed. Um, tell me about leading a PD in a remote village in Alaska. Tell me, tell me the <laughs> gloriousness of of how you just absolutely ten out of ten on yeah. just ten out of ten nailed that. It is one of the wildest experiences I've ever had as an educator, a human being. 
that uh, it was very difficult, but now lingers with me and I'm so glad that I did it. So um, this was back when I was working for the Quantum Learning Network and they were doing you know all sorts of professional development. And so a few times throughout the year, I get a chance to travel to these different schools and all of a sudden this lead popped up of they're like, hey, we've got this remote village in Alaska. Like, And when we say remote, like you can only get there by plane or snowmobile or maybe dog sled. And so if you do this, like you're going to have to be out there for a full week. Um, And it was a joint experience of like working with their teachers and their professional development practices, but also working with their students as well throughout the the day. And so, of course, I'm like, let's go. Like, of course, I want to go into the middle of nowhere, Alaska. And I mean, just getting there was like a two day process. And you fly in in this tiny little plane. Chivak, Alaska is the, the name of the community. Um, I believe like the entire community is like 800 people. They've got their one school. They have no restaurants. Um, Like I had to eat Hot Pockets, microwave meals the entire time I was there. No hotels. I literally slept in an inflatable mattress in a special education room, which let me tell you how freaky it is to sleep inside a school in the middle of the night. Like every single sound. I'm like, this this is like, this is where murder stories happen. Like this. Especially those Hot Pockets backfiring. I mean, you're going to be making your own sounds. (laughs) Right. Like I, if I wanted to shower, I had to like wait until late at night and use like the, the locker room showers at the school in order to bathe. So like the context of it was like, we're really, you're going to have to be able to bring your best into situations that you're not used to and context that you're not used to. Um, But kind of what made it additionally challenging was that the staff had not requested this professional development. And even though I, I stand by wholeheartedly the, the value of the professional development, they weren't requesting it. The um, organizer who's no longer with the school um, for now obvious reasons made them stay after the contractual hours, like late into the mm-hmm. evening for me to facilitate this professional development. And so like oh, I was man. the target point that all oh, of their man. anger of that was guided towards. And like that's where I got some real biting feedback of people just like attacking me as a human being. Um, and so it was one of those thoughts of like, well, I can't just like call up the company and be like, I'm out. Like I have to wait for a plane to come get me. <laughs> like we They're are never going to find your body. Here. They're never going to find your body. That's right. It, we are stuck here. It smells, it smells of cheap meat and cheese. <laughs> Um, but in the process, you know, like I had to really hone, hone my skills of like, how do I try to, uh, let down their guards as much as possible of get on an equal playing field of like, Hey, we're, we're working through this together and I, I'm just literally here to help you. And I'm going to try to learn as much about your context and world as I can. Um, you know, the students were, were very challenging students. Like I remember I was in the middle of talking and I just watched this girl. She just looks over and hocks a loogie and just shoots it right onto the floor, like the carpeted rug, and then just like stares back at me. A kid comes up to me on a break and he's like, you want to fight? I'm like, like what is what is happening right now? What was your response? What did you say? I was like, uh, you know, I'm not really much of a fighter. Like it's not really my, my thing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was really, really challenging, but you know, kind of the silver lining is they asked me back the next year. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, this it was not where point, I saw this going. Right. It was like to the point, where I was like, uh, yeah, I had to really think of, okay, they, they want me to come back, but that was really, really challenging. Um, but coming back, the set, 
<laughs> I did. I was well prepared for like Good. more snacks. Um, but coming back the second time, you know, it was like a lot of the students remembered me. They were excited to see me. The most critical teacher uh, from the previous year I was there, she asked me to come into her classroom to watch how she was implementing some of the things we talked about. So it was like, I'm glad I stuck with it. Mm-hmm. So you get some of those success stories. But Holy cow, I would not wish that professional development or speaking experience on any facilitator because now, now two uh, days to get rough. there. How many days of actual training were you doing? I did the first year I did three, and then the second mm-hmm. year I did four. Um, so, so a couple hours yeah. into day one, you know, this is not going well. <laughs> and, and yet I am contractually obligated for another uh, 68 hours. Yes. Yep. And like, you know, when you're literally just there to present and your space to escape to is just a classroom, like there's no like entertainment to distract my brain from it. So I'm just like sitting there stewing on like, this is really challenging. They hate me. What am I going to do? I have to do all this content again tomorrow and try to connect with them. So um, what do you think think won won them over? Was it more you who you are? Like just sort of being honest about that? It was it the content? Was it just combination of both? It was probably a balance of both. I mean, the the content is is really, really good content. I mean, it's all brain-based learning. It's the type of stuff where like no one can really go into it and not get something from it. Like one of the critical pieces is <laughs> what I share, like, oh, my background, I'm an English teacher. One of the critical teachers like, oh, great. Another one of those English teacher types. And so it was like, ooh, like just like that alone creates some division. But the way the content is the structure and set up is it doesn't matter what you teach, you can use these strategies. So having solid content was one. And then I, you know, I, I work really hard to just be, be professional and also be relatable. Um, I remember I asked for their feedback cards and like, that's where I got these really biting bits of feedback. Like one person said, wear better clothes, like just mean <laughs> stuff. Like mean girl stuff. Well, I don't know. Do you have photos from back then? I mean, let's, I, let's keep I an open okay. mind here. I was married then. And so my wife was very much training me how to dress well. Very so well. like, I actually, I went back into it the next day and I was like, Hey, I got a chance to read through your, your feedback. And I want to share some of the insights that I got. Um, and so I shared some of the things of like, some of this was really helpful for me. Thank you. Like, this is what we're going to do differently moving forward. But I did kind of call them out a little bit of like, I did get a couple bits of uh, feedback that weren't necessarily helpful. So for example, someone told me to wear better clothes. I'm so sorry. Like I only packed one suitcase. I don't know if you guys have any suggestions or any stores I can buy clothes, let me know. Um, to kind of call them out and deflect with humor a little bit, but, um, it was definitely, uh, you, you, you earn your skill set by being mm. placed in some of those situations. And mm. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. I, I spoke at a gymnasium in Michigan, actually, mm. where, where you <laughs> hail from. It, it, like 1,200 students in a gym, all sides of the gym, so surrounding mm. me. Horrific sound system, hour-long mm. assembly. <laughs> and within 90 seconds in, I knew I have no one's attention, no mm. one's. And I just, I, I literally cried after that assembly. <laughs> I literally, yeah, I think I was 22. Yeah. I cried and I was like, this, it, never again. I'm done. This is it. <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah, those, those moments are painful, but undoubtedly shape us. Yeah, it it almost kind of serves as like, I don't want to say rock bottom, but like it, it was the hardest thing I've ever done from a professional development standpoint. So now when like, you know, the technology isn't working perfectly right. or, you know, half the staff is sitting way in the back and they've brought their own like papers to grade, like 
I don't take it as personally because I've been through that challenging moment yeah. of like, okay, if I can get through a week in remote Alaskan village with that, like I can deal with this for the next hour or six hours of a training. Let's turn our attention to screen. Talk to me mm. about the course you created, Reignite, which is squarely aimed at educators. Uh, you put together, there's, there's videos, yeah. there's downloads, there's different elements. Talk to me about how you kind of first thought about the elements you would take from your keynotes, from your training, and begin to put together that course. Yeah, it, I think that's a tricky way or uh, translation to make. I think possibly, you know, it's a nice combination of if you have some good writing skills and you have some good speaking skills, like you somewhat can marry those two together. But um, virtual delivery in general is a different beast, I think, than speaking in person, but especially when it's pre-recorded and you're trying to build and structure things in, um, you know, teaching through the pandemic was super helpful. I think I like actually was creating the course in like 2020, 2021. And so it was like, automatically, I'm having to learn these skills of best practices with recording content and how to make it not too much information and how to provide the writing support and the, the different activities and discussion. And so it was kind of the trial by fire of a lot of that helped translate. Um, but still, I think it's it's really hard not to want to turn a virtual course into like multi-day experience for people because you, know, you get in front of the camera, you're like, oh, I have all this stuff I want to say and all this stuff I want to deliver and there are all these activities, but still having to put yourself in the mind of the audience is really, yes. really important that like, even if I can can talk in front of a camera for an hour and I have all these activities, sure enough, like no one's going to sit and listen to that for a while. So a lot of it was just trying to take core ideas and just chunk them as much as possible. So everything I started looking through like these little phases of like, normally if I do 20 minutes of content on this in a professional development workshop or speech, like I'm going to chunk that into four different pieces. And so how do I divide up those pieces? Um, still, it's like, that is the area of my work that I want to do the most tinkering around still. Like I'm in a process of revising that based off of feedback and just, you know, all the things of like, well, now you have to get a better camera or a better microphone because yeah. you want to increase the quality because if the quality isn't good, then they're going to think the ideas aren't good as well. And, and that's, I think, very different beast to take on sometimes than like I'm just writing and by myself on my computer or I'm speaking in front of a group of people. Agreed. I want to get into the nitty gritty of this. With, with, with each of these videos within the course, yeah. would you write it out manuscript word for word? Would you write out the first sentence, the last sentence, the rest was bullet pointed. I mean, when you stood up mm. and hit record, what were you looking at that the audience isn't seeing? Mm. I do not do as well scripting it out because if I miss the script or if I think of something kind of on the fly, um, I just start to fall apart in my head. And so like I, I would end up spending more time trying to record, record it perfectly because I had already written it out how I wanted to be in my mind. And so I've always kind of benefited, especially I think my style of speaking is much more kind of conversational. You know, I'm not too worried about having little fillers start to creep in here and there 
have the little jokes that just kind of come impromptu. And so the way I would structure it out is I would start with my slides of, I know I have this content on the slide and, ooh, to make sure I don't miss that content, I'm literally going to make sure it is, pops up as a bullet point so that I can have some recall and not get lost in the moment. Um, so slides are always my starting point of just getting that piece mapped out first with some of the specifics. And then typically what I would do is I would do a little dry run. So I would not even hit record on the camera. I would just run through those slides, get it into my system, um, hear how it sounds, time it to see, because a lot of times I would talk for way longer than I mm -hmm. thought I would. Um, so that was kind of my structure piece. In I think. Did you show you know, anyone those dry runs? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I was kind of working in isolation around that. Um, most of the feedback I got was after I put together a draft and had a, a small group of people that I trusted. I shared it with them and gave them access and asked them for feedback. And so um, they gave sometimes very targeted feedback on specific videos and sometimes more general, more broad Um but so you yeah, didn't was, have any kind of bullet pointed written outline in front of you. It was it was more so like your slides acted as those key talking points or bullet yeah. points. Is that correct? Yeah. I think part of my comfort in doing that, again, you know, not to to go on this ad nauseum, but teaching for so long. I mean, you don't you don't script out your lessons as a teacher. You have you know what your questions are gonna be and you know, you know what your first line is gonna be, you know like how it's gonna move within the phase, but you have to learn to let go of perfection when you're delivering a lesson to, to students in person. And so I try to adopt that same mentality of uh, there's for sure stuff I want in there and I'm going to make sure my slides do that visually, but I'm also going to be okay if it's not as polished sounding as it might be had I rehearsed it a bajillion times mm -hmm. or scripted it. I, I want to talk about recording in regards to audience and tone. Mm. All right, so you're sitting alone in your house in 2020. You either stand up or you're sitting there. You press record. Uh -huh. Because this is something that's going to be pre-recorded, you're going to have yeah. educators in Alaska, in <laughs> Detroit, New York City, rural Florida, all sorts of folks watching it. Are you trying, like, who are you picturing that you're talking to? Are you picturing, mm. are you trying to intentionally think of, like, four quadrants of educator, you know, like, Rural and new, rural and experienced, you know, urban and experienced. Mm. Are you thinking quadrants? Or are you picturing like an educator that's a buddy that you have great conversation with? You go deep, but you also keep it light. Who are you picturing when you're staring at this? you know, blinking green yeah. light while you're recording. Yeah, I'm very much thinking of specific colleagues that represent some of those archetypes. Um, I don't worry too much about regionally uh, because, you know, I think more in education, you get these archetypes of types of teachers than necessarily that's influenced by the region. And so um, I have my department head in mind who is the most intelligent and cynical and well-informed human being I've ever met in my life. And so like, I'm picturing like, how would I need to frame this so that, um, you know, he doesn't tear me a new one and pick me apart. I've got um, a colleague who's also very experienced as a veteran, but is also, you know, he, he will only put something into play if it's really practical. And so like, how am I selling the practical element of this? Um, I have the colleague in my mind who loves ideas like they They get really geeked about ideas, but they go over the top. And so how am I going to make this a little bit more bite sized so that they don't get too excited and over the top with it? So it's it's kind of more of like these are the people I've worked with and I have heard how they respond to professional development. 
after the professional developer leaves. And so, and one part like content wise development and the tone I'm using, I'm keeping them in mind, but I'm also coming from the standpoint that seeing something on video and hearing a person on video is very different than in person. And you have to kick the gauge up when you're performing in an empty room in front of a camera a little bit differently than you do um, if you're just in person. And so um, I'm, I'm kind of I'm taking those elements of where they're at, but I'm also like, I need to bring up my energy. Like I really, even mm-hmm. though I'm not going to be on video all the time, I'm using my hands to demonstrate what I'm saying. And I'm trying to put a smile on my face when I'm going to deliver something that's a little bit more jovial or funny. And so I think that's kind of almost that, that performer piece coming into play of like, I need to up the gradient or up my game a little bit um, so that they can feel my energy through the screen. Hmm. That, that's interesting. I tend to tell folks to tone down their energy when they're mm. when they're speakers who go to record something because as a speaker it's like someone sitting in row 30 they are 212 feet away from you yeah yeah watching you so you you know things need to be a little bigger whereas mm. when you're recording something everyone is you know 3 feet from you yeah you know, the the camera's here it, it yeah. is if you brought like keynote energy to a one-on-one conversation in Starbucks, you'd be like, what kind of drugs are you on and where can I get them? Um, and, and are you distributing them at the back of the table? So how do you, how do you yeah. think about your kind of delivery style, you know, when the audience is right up in your face versus what you what you have a ton of reps in, which is yeah. the keynote? Yeah. I think when considering energy, you're really trying to parcel out what are the different elements that we would pull together to say about someone's energy. So like volume is is a piece of that energy. I'm not going to talk at the same volume that I do when I'm recording a video as I would when I'm presenting a keynote. Um, but my tone of voice, like that's going to come across. And so the same tone I use and the reflection inflections I use and the pauses that I put into play, I want to try to keep those at a pretty high level and pretty consistent because I think that carries over into film or video a little bit more. Um, facial expressions, I think still, like we're, we're going to have to have some pretty strong facial expressions. I'm not going to go over the top, but if I am talking about a joke and they can't really see it on my face in video, then it's for sure not coming across and it's going to be a little bit more flat. Um, I also think there's probably a difference between if they can visually see me versus it's just slides and my audio is coming into play. I don't often feel like I have to up my elements of energy as much if they can see my face. But if it is just my voice, I try to work a lot harder on really making sure I am giving that full inflection and that tone and those pauses and using my facial expressions to try to pour out those emotions as well. Um, It's just kind of how I framed it to more or less not let myself go the other direction of just being like, I'm in front of an empty room. Yeah, for um, sure. Because that, that, I get more pulled into that category, I think, than going too big or too strong. Let's talk about the, let's talk about the business side of this. You're yeah. selling this course on Teachable. You know, yeah. it's priced at essentially 100 bucks for one license, mm-hmm. 445 for five, which kind of trickles down like 89 bucks per license. Yeah. What did you think your 
business strategy was going to be to sell this course and what has it actually ended up becoming? <laughs> so I, I mean, I will admit, and, and you know, this is about me when we first started talking, like the business mindset and the business acumen is, is not my strength right now. Like I have to work extra hard to try to understand how, how to even approach and go about these things. And so, you know, initially I was looking around of like, okay, who are some of the most successful educators or content developers in the educational space that are selling their own courses? Um, and so I, I was finding these individuals, I was looking at what their pricing point was. I was actually like buying some of their courses and doing some research around like, what are, what are people actually getting with this course? And so I kind of went into that mindset of like, I want to try to mirror as much as I can what they are doing with the type of content and how much content and the pricing point. Um, but I would say what his, I kind of learned through the process is I wasn't and still haven't gotten as many like individual sales of someone picking up this course and being like, hey, I want this personally for me. I'm getting way more of this being kind of a leverage opportunity with districts or ISDs or organizations who are like, hey, we're actually going to pay for like a big chunk of the licenses because we want our staff to be exposed from it or to it. And so that has kind of shifted how I approach it of not so much worrying or putting my energy into like the individual sale points, but if I am going to be providing this for a group of people, then how is mm -hmm. my content going to have to look a little different? How is the initial launch need to look different? How is the follow-up potentially going to be built in to help out that? Um, Are most of these bulk licenses folks that have hosted you for a keynote or training or folks that attended a keynote or training mm -hmm. versus how many they, they've never seen you speak at all? I think... If I look back, probably about 70% is they have seen me or they're going to see me. So they've already, um, you know, kind of bought into to my content that I do. And probably about 30 to 40% is more like that. That's their access point where um, they haven't had me speak. I haven't been in there, but um, either they like the content or they like the, the topic around it, or they've at least heard of me in some other space or capacity. So um, yeah, sometimes that's kind of interesting is like I, someone will pick up the license and then it becomes this point of like, Ooh, should I like contact them of like, Hey, I'm speaking. I would love to help launch this and use that versus I'm speaking with a client and let them know, Hey, I also have this follow-up resource. So mm -hmm. after I'm done speaking, like this is available to you. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly the thing to figure out and the tricky thing. Yeah. To figure out, are, are you are you putting breadcrumbs in your speech anywhere where you sort of gently, not a hard sell, mention the course or these bulk licenses that have been purchased? Folks are kind of seeing you and just going, ah, I wonder what else he has. You know, he shared his website. I'm going to get on there. I'm going to dig into it. Which of those kind yeah. of approaches seems to be happening? It tends to be much more um, the client wants more after I've spoken. And so I'm talking with them about it more than pitching it whole group, um, which isn't to say that I shouldn't do that. Like I absolutely should. It's just I, that's one of the pieces that I, I forget to do sometimes is to like share with people like, hey, here are other ways to, to access these ideas and here's some ways to stay in connection. So um, much more. And th this is part of what I do a lot within my approach to speaking is really do a lot of connection before and after the event with the client yeah. of like, hey, here's 
here's what I want to know about your audience. Here's what you need to know about me. And then following up a lot of like, hey, I, I don't believe in like one-stop shop professional development. Like I care deeply about trying to help your staff, not in just short term, but the long term. What could it look like to partner moving forward? And so that's more often than not where those large licenses and connections start to come from. Yeah. And th- I mean, and that's why having a quality keynote or a quality PD yeah. matters so much is not only does it sort of increase your spinoff rate, you know, mm. if you're speaking, if you're keynoting at an event and there are 20 schools represented and you don't get at least four or five inquiries from that event, th- you know, yeah. to me, that is, that is sort of a data point mm. that mm, something isn't as good as it could be w- within yeah. that keynote. And then yeah, similarly, sure. if you, if you crush the keynote, then the teachers are leaning in, you know, the principal, the assistant principal, the superintendent sees that and goes, cool, maybe they would engage with, Mm. you know, with his further content and ideas. Yeah, for sure. I think it it again comes down to like the quality of what you do of if your keynote's crap, (laughs) then they're not going to want the course. If your course is crap, they're not going to want to bring you in as a keynote. So really just try, trying our best to like give the, the full amount of quality attention that we can. And I think that's tricky of, you know, if you feel like you have three, four different things you have to try to get really good and strong at, you still have to prioritize, like, where should I start? Should I start with really just developing the keynote? Should I make sure the course is in play? Um, but just really always working and tweaking and tinkering. Yeah. For you, the, I mean, it, it, for you, the, the sequence was trainings. Mm-hmm then the book, then the keynote, mm-hmm. then the course. Is that correct? Yep. That, that was the, Is that the sequence was, you would advise to someone starting out? Uh, oh, that's a, I'll say this, the keynote, getting that changed everything. Um, yeah. That was like the, the missing element that once I had that down, it created way more workshop opportunities and way more interest in my writing and way more um, opportunities to even provide this course. So I think that's the most important piece for really trying to resonate with speaking and grow. On the flip side, though, I don't know at least with my audience of educators, if I would have been as effective with my keynote course development writing had I not had a really strong background in leading professional development. So I think, you know, depending on where a person's skill set is, that they want to try to use that and maximize that to the best of their ability before they start to move into some of these other phases. Um, But at the end of the day, I think that the keynote is huge, is huge. I love it. Well, Chase, thank you for your insights. For sure. Uh, so you're good, a sharp man. guy. It's an honor to work with you, and thanks for sharing all of your insights today. I'm geeked to be on here. I'll, uh, I'll send you all my songs. I'm just going to barrage you with songs I make up. Oh, I'm going to make awesome. up songs songs about no. you, Josh, about the podcast, and I'm just going to send fine. your way. <laughs> I mean, however, however it has to start, I mean, you know, I don't give a crepe. I don't give a crepe. <laughs> No, I, no, I wrote no. down three bread so, puns. We're just gonna we're gonna jam them in right here at the end. He didn't listen to a single one of your answers actually because he was working so hard on those things. Yeah, I saw him well, sweating. it was really Chat GPT, but I'm my yeah. prompting is incredible. It in, is incredible. Just it's all about you know, I don't give a crepe. Let's just get that one out there. Okay, what else you got? Uh, last but not yeast. Come on. <laughs> and um, all I heard was yeast is on the air around us. That's something new to me. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's very philosophical. It's not funny. It's just scary. Yeah. 
No, it's you know, true. It's, it's, it's true. It's also super gross that when you when you need bread by hand, <laughs> can you hand, guys shut up so I can get my third <laughs> okay, pun well, in here? This is no, I need like I need to share this. this. When you need yeah, bread yeah, by Alaska. hand, let's just ignore some of your now. DNA is now mixed no. in with that bread. So Ooh, that's profound. You are like you are bringing in the yeast from the air, but you're also bringing in the natural bacteria and yeast from your hands. That so, whew, so it's Dave's gross, killer bread but it is, is actually Dave's killer bread. See, now yeah. we got to tag this episode as explicit. This okay. is just ridiculous. And so what is the third? Because it better um, be so let's good. Let's get ready to crumble. <laughs> oh, dude, that was good. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Come on. I like That'll that. That'll preach. All right, cheers, y'all. Thanks, Jace.